I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the LRB Podcast, and I'm your host, Adam Schatz. My guest on this episode is the New York Times columnist Thomas B. Edsall, who's joining us from his home in Washington, D.C. Edsall is one of the sharpest and one of the most sobering commentators on American domestic politics. He reported for the Washington Post for 25 years and wrote a number of influential books about the rise of the right, including Building Red America and Chain Reaction. In 2011, he moved to the New York Times, where he publishes a column every Wednesday. His columns are particularly notable for their attention to demography, social class, and cultural resentment, and for the way that he incorporates the findings of academic research, especially political science. Today, we'll be talking about the midterms, which concluded on Tuesday with the election of Raphael Warnock over Herschel Walker in the Georgia runoff for the Senate. Uh, Thanks for joining us, Tom. My pleasure. Good to be here. I'd like to start with the results in Georgia. Uh, Raphael Warnock, a progressive pastor, defeated Herschel Walker, a former football star and evangelist, evangelical Christian, who, uh, in spite of a very checkered past involving physical abuse of his partners, had a strong race. What do you think is the significance of this election? Uh, Well, in one respect, it shows how Georgia, which has been a red Republican state, has been steadily moving towards a purple status, you might say. And this is a phenomenon taking place in a lot of uh, states in the United States where there is a large minority population, which is combining with Hispanic growth, immigrant growth, and the conversion of suburban whites, well-educated suburban whites, uh, from the Republican Party to the uh, uh, Democratic Party. That's been going on in the North for quite a while, but now it's beginning to hit the South, even places like Texas. So one major significance in terms of the long run is that Georgia is moving into competitive status. Now, they had a terrible candidate this time, and Democrats should not make too much of their win. Uh, uh, Herschel Walker got an extraordinarily strong level of support from whites, uh, even though he carried inconceivable baggage. I mean, uh, in in an election 20 years ago, he would have been dead in the water from the the word go. In this case, he was competitive right to the end, which shows another major aspect about American politics, which is that both sides, but particularly Republicans, are willing to tolerate candidates just because they are not Democrats and they uh, can be vile people in many respects. And you could say that about Trump. You could say that about uh, Herschel Walker. Not just vile, but utterly incompetent as well. Oh, beyond, yes. Uh, But you had the same, there was a race in Alabama for Senate a while ago where the Republican candidate, devout Christian, had been credibly accused in his 30s of trying to pick up teenager, young teenagers in a shopping mall, and he was barred from the shopping mall. But white evangelicals voted for this guy by 80 plus percent. And uh, it's become, it's made American politics immovable almost. And it's what it's done is also, there's very little attempt to persuade people much more an attempt to just get your own voters to the polls so that the demographic shifts become more important than the persuasive qualities that a campaign has. And the ability to identify your supporters, communicate with them, and make sure they go out and vote becomes more important than the kind of advertising you do. 
Uh, it's really the American politics in the last 10 years has really changed. And Georgia is emblematic of that in many respects. Let, let's talk a little more generally about the uh, about the midterms. The Democrats had a surprisingly good midterms. Uh, they've ended up with a solid majority in the Senate, and they did much better in the House than was expected since generally parties in power do, do poorly um, in, in midterms. Were, were you surprised uh, by these results? I mean, in your columns, I think you warned that the Democrats might fare poorly uh, because of inflation and uh, anxieties about crime. Uh, I was surprised. I thought crime would play much stronger than it did, and I thought inflation would play much more stronger than it did. In the post-election surveys, it was interesting, however, that democracy actually played a stronger role than a lot of people thought it would. It had appeared before then to be kind of a subordinate issue, people worrying about whether democracy is threatened. Turned out, actually, it was up right up there in the top two, top two in exit polls and other matters. With abortion, right? Yeah, and abortion had had gone way up right after the anti-abortion decision, the Dobbs decision. Of the Supreme Court. And it seemed to be faltering. But actually, it, it, it by election day, again, it was back up. So you had Republicans had inflation and they had immigration and crime. But the, the, the Democrats had roughly equal levels on democracy and abortion. So there was really... That was very surprising to me, but it does show that the the idea that the Supreme Court can really intervene and set policy in a way that is opposed by a majority of the population carries real liabilities for the Republican Party right now. It was an autocratic kind of imposition, and it fit into the, the, the Supreme Court thing echoed the democracy issue by showing what happens when you have non-democratic choices being made that affect broad policies. It was a very, it, it really tapped into this fear, in a sense, of living under a, a, an authority. Minority rule. Yes. Um, and probably uh, reminded people, in a symbolic sense, of the Republican national victories without a popular majority. Exactly. It fit, it, it that the Dobbs thing fit so many different ways into the uh, sort of ang- potential anxieties of a of any minority or any group that actually a majority a majority is basically pro abortion rights uh, of having the imposition of policies that are unwanted and unsupported by the political system. And that's the real danger that the Republicans tapped into. And the Republican Supreme Court at this point, I think, is a, is a liability to the to the Republican Party. The, the Dobbs decision that's giving the Republican Party gave the anti-abortion right false comfort over time, I think. And we'll see how it plays out over a much longer period. I mean, the theory that you're outlining about Democratic success in the midterms focusing on fears about uh, democracy and concerns about um, the protection of abortion rights pretty much mirrors the account that the pollster Nate Cohn gave after the election. But I'm wondering, do you think that Biden, in spite of his low popularity ratings, deserves some of the success for presiding over this victory? Some. Uh, He... he, he turned out to be less of a liability, even though his unfavorable ratings were were in the tank and still are in the tank. He's a hard person to hate in the same sense that people could hate Trump or they could hate Hillary Clinton. And they hate, so a lot of people hated Bill Clinton. He is not, doesn't convey an evil quality to, to even to his opponents. So he didn't build up that kind of momentum. And he also had passed these bills that had just started to come into effect, the Build Back America infrastructure. And he was able to cite some roads and big bridges and and other things where you could actually see democratic policies affecting the lives of people on the ground. I think that 
at the margin helped him. I don't think it was a big deal, but it was a, it just helped smooth things along. And he also had the Inflation Reduction Act on climate change. Well, not just the act, but also gas prices were, were and still are coming down. And now, apparently, uh, housing prices are, are most people expect to start coming down. If that happens prior, continues on into 2024, he will be actually in pretty good shape on those issues. I'm no economist, so I don't know what the uh, reality is on all that, but it, it so far it looks pretty good on those cores. One of the great success stories in the midterms was in a state um, that has a lot of white working class Trump voters um, and was a swing state. Um, and I'm talking about Pennsylvania, uh, John Fetterman. John Fetterman ran as a kind of left wing populist and took positions on uh, matters like criminal justice that were, you know, fairly left. And he did quite well. How do you account for, for Fetterman's victory? Well, first, I think if he had not had the stroke, I don't think it would have been competitive at all. I think he would have been much stronger. And he has a sort of gut, gut appeal to working class white voters in the way he dresses and acts. And he, he looks like one of the guys much more than any politician does. And the other thing is, with Oz as his opponent, to have an out-of-state kind of strange person running against you and someone vulnerable to portrayal as all kinds of bizarre qualities, which Fetterman did very efficiently during the campaign. So I, I think in what would be, you just don't know the outcome. If if Fetterman had been healthy, but had had a better candidate running against him, I think he still would have won. But I, I, I who knows? He turned out to be, in the end, better. And it turned out that his disability, which showed up terribly in the debates, where he was almost incomprehensible at times, it actually brought out a lot of sympathy and a lot of people who have relatives who are, who've had a stroke or themselves have had strokes or other things felt for him and, and felt that he was not incompetent, but struggling. It created a well, of, a well of empathy for him. Yes. But he, I would be reluctant to draw too much from that campaign because it had so many oddities with his stroke, with the, with Oz. It, it, it's hard to figure out if there's some underlying principle to be drawn from it. The the governor's race in Pennsylvania was clearly a case where a Trump-endorsed guy who believed that the election was stolen was defeated decisively. You're talking about Doug Mastriano, a yes. extreme right-wing politician who had also uh, engaged in pretty blatantly anti-Semitic appeals against his opponent. Yes, and he was a member of some kind of strange Christian sect that was bizarre. But beyond that, he is emblematic, though, in the sense that virtually all of the Trump candidates got killed. They just the voters did not go for these guys who and women who saying the election was stolen, the Democrats are corrupt, and some of whom would even go farther and talk about basically QAnon kind of theories that Democrats are pedophiles and trafficking in children. I mean, another yes. example would be would be Kari Lake, the former yes. broadcaster and liberal Buddhist who became a sort of MAGA warrior. She lost in Arizona. She was an attractive candidate. On, uh, otherwise, she was a nutcase, but she had a good political manner. She had a good style. And much better, in fact, than her Democratic opponent, a woman who was kind of stiff and uncomfortable on the stump, Carrie Lake. She she was had been a TV personality, and she knew how to to sort of interact with people, but she got defeated. And in the Senate race, there too, the same same process. It's it's it uh, Trump and his ideas really were repudiated pretty badly in this last election. Hasn't been a, a good time for Trump. I mean, only a few days ago, his organization in New York was found guilty of various crimes. Now, I don't know if that, though, really is all that good for the Democrats. The best candidate for Democrats in 2024 would be Trump. Uh, he, is a, he mobilizes Democrats. He now has reached the point where I think 
He does much more to mobilize Democrats than he does for Republicans. He was very big mobilizing Republicans in 2020. We got a huge, they got a, he lost, but he got a huge turnout for record setting turnout. And that's why the Democrats did not do well in the House elections because of all those Trump voters coming out. But I think now he, he has really gone past a tipping point and has become pretty clearly a liability. Well, you said in your most recent column, Trump is unraveling before our eyes, but will it matter? So does it matter that he's unraveling? Well, it, it does, but we don't know what the outcome is going to be. If he is able to hold on to his 30 to 40 percent of the Republican electorate, and there are multiple candidates running against him, he will be in good shape to be the Republican nominee. If the Republican sort of mainstream unifies behind one candidate, like a Ron DeSantis or a Glenn Youngkin, the governor of uh, Virginia, then it's possible they could beat Trump for the nomination. But even if they beat him, there's another problem. Trump is the kind of guy who doesn't like to lose, and he'll be very angry at whoever beat him. And he may do everything he can in that circumstance to basically undermine that the one who the guy who did beat him, DeSantis or Youngkin or whoever it is. So you're you're but you're suggesting that that if if DeSantis or Youngkin beat Trump in the primaries and that person ran for president, Trump could retaliate by telling his supporters not to, not to vote. Yes, and they have responded to that if, in Georgia in. 2020, they've run off elections back when Ossoff and Warnock first got elected in the Senate. Trump had been saying these elections are so corrupt, don't participate. They didn't. And uh, he ended up electing two Democrats to the Senate and giving the Democrats a majority. Uh, he, he, I, I, the more I talk about it, the more it's clear that Trump is the best thing that ever happened to the Democrats in many respects at this point. He certainly has taken the edge off the liabilities that uh, the Democrats have. But the thing is, even if the Republicans uh, and the Republican donor class has come to this belated realization that Trump uh, is a liability for them and that they can't, and that they can't win, they can't win with him. Extricating themselves from Trump is going to be pretty difficult because of the passion that he still arouses among his core of his hot core of supporters, wouldn't you say? No question. And how how they get rid of him, in a sense, becomes the critical question. Republicans would love it if he just kept looking at the polls and said, oh, it looks worse and worse. I'm not going to run. And that would just take the edge off the whole process. If he runs and loses, that's going to be how they handle that will be very difficult. And that they will be devoting strategic efforts. I don't know if they would, he, he wouldn't want to be a vice president to someone else's ticket, but some honorifics would flow to him from the party to keep him peaceful in a fashion you've never seen before. I mean, it's striking that even now, um, most Republicans seem unwilling or unable to break fully with him, even after he's, you know, lost an election for them, even after he's entertained white supremacists and Holocaust deniers at Mar-a-Lago. And I'm referring to the recent dinner with uh, with Kanye West, or Ye rather, and, uh, and Nick Fuentes. The, even the, the, the harshest criticisms of that dinner made by Mike Pence didn't even characterize Trump himself as a racist or anti-Semite. They were extremely uh, careful. He's still like a uh, live hand grenade in the in the uh, Republican Party. No one wants to really pick it up and throw it. That uh, they really would prefer to hide behind and not have to deal with it at all. The pluses and minuses of addressing Trump are are so problematic for virtually. Almost every Republican, except people like very radical right people like Marjorie Green Taylor or Jim Jordan or people who really are bomb throwers. Matt Gates, yeah, right. They jump in, uh, in support of him in a, in a New York minute. But for the rest of them, even McConnell has been, I mean, McConnell said things after the January 6th insurrection that indicated Trump was, a, was almost criminal 
And then when it came time to vote on the uh, impeachment, he chickened out. But they're chickening out because they see their own electorates that they could get defeated themselves in a primary by a, if they're portrayed as an anti-Trump Republican, a never-Trumper. And that, that that's a, a kiss of death for them, that this idea that you are in any way a liberal. The animosity to, to being sort of out of the orthodoxy is overwhelming. It's, a, it's strong in both parties, but in the Republican Party, it's a primary killer uh, and has shown to be. Now, since the midterms, Trump's response to defeat has been to double down on racism and conspiracy theory, and he's even called for the termination of constitutional rule. What's the strategy here besides self-aggrandizement with the most extreme wing of his base? What, what, what's in it for him? Uh, uh, frankly, I don't see it as a winning strategy. There's been a trend away from him in the party. They, back when he was president, all the way through his presidency, when you asked Republicans, are you a Republican because you believe in the party, or are you a Republican because you believe in Trump? It was almost two to one in favor of Trump. People that they said they're Republican because of Trump. This was all Republicans. That has basically shifted, shifted the flipped the opposite way. It's now I'm a Republican because I, I'm a Republican. That's about 63%. And I'm a Republican because of Trump has fallen down to 33%. That's all since 20, the 2020 election. That erosion is problematic for him. And I don't see how this strategy of his increases that 30% back up again. Uh, he needs people who believe that he is the Republican Party. He is what they want the party to be. And th this QAnon stuff that he's doing where he's using QAnon music and wearing QAnon buttons, that, that's really... Uh, it's a non-starter politically. Now, your, your columns are often um, explorations of what uh, political scientists have been saying about current events and, and also longer-term political and economic trends. And uh, in a recent column, you quoted a political scientist at Columbia, Robert Erickson, who thinks that America might be reaching a, a kind of... Um, have you no decency moment with Trump. Um, uh, Erickson is alluding to that moment in the Army McCarthy hearings in 1954 when Joseph, Joseph Welch, uh, counsel to the U.S. Army, uh, asked Joseph McCarthy, um, have you no sense of decency? But what are the grounds for thinking that there might be this have you no sense of decency moment with Trump? Do you see any signs of that? Not overtly at this point. Uh, but the I think um, Erickson's point was though that these kind of things can suddenly happen where some a, a phrase like that have you no decency senator have you and he, he those are really dramatic moment if there's a movie that shows this that's a great scene and suddenly and you're talking about D'Antonio's film point of order yes and it captures that sense suddenly that Mac McCarthy has gone over the edge and McCarthy doesn't know it he keeps pounding on pressing his case, sort of unaware that he has pushed too far over the edge. Now, whether that could happen, I mean, it would take someone, I don't know who, but like a, a prominent Republican senator, maybe, or somebody. And it probably, it, that was a face-to-face -face confrontation, which made it all the more effective. I, it, it, I, I can see how Eric, Erickson could speculate on such a thing. How how it could happen though in reality is another another matter and or, or I suppose it could happen if um, a candidate like uh, a DeSantis or Youngkin uh, trounces him in a primary. Yes, and then he comes back at them, and then either DeSantis or a third party says to him basically, "What kind of man are you that you would continue to?" assault someone who just showed you up. At any rate, I don't know. Now, those those candidates, those Republicans, uh, could potentially be more effective in a, in a national race against a, against a Democratic Party. I mean, if, for example, if um, if uh, 
if DeSantis, who has been anointed by some Republican strategists, were to be the candidate, and DeSantis is in his mid-40s, if a vigorous DeSantis, who's young and alert, ran against Joe Biden, who's in his early 80s and less alert, uh, DeSantis might have a, a strong chance of winning. Um, but DeSantis is just as right-wing as Donald Trump. I mean, perhaps he's he's uh, less of a uh, of a potential wrecker of what remains of our democratic system, but he's anti-immigrant. Uh, his economics are regressive. Would this be Trumpism without Trump? Well, the, the, one of the main things about Trump was not his policies, but how he thrived on owning the libs, owning the left, making them cringe. And that's what made him very popular with his supporters. Uh, they, they, his supporters love someone who, who really sticks it to the enemy. DeSantis does that to some extent, but DeSantis has been substantively far more successful than Trump was. DeSantis has you may oppose all these things, but he has enacted legislation that prohibits critical race theory. He's done a whole lot to change the character of Florida and Florida politics uh, with policies that Trump never did. All Trump ever did was to pass one tax bill, basically, and do some trade deals. But beyond that... He could be actually be much more efficient and much more dangerous for a progressive yes, agenda. I think he could be... Uh, one, I think he is a potentially strong candidate against Biden. And two, that Republicans are virtually certain right now to take control of the Senate in 2024. There are more than twice as many Democrats up for re-election in 2024 than there are Republicans. And the Republicans who are up are all safe in very red states. The Democrats, conversely, include at least eight and probably more who are in purple to red states, including such places as West Virginia and Montana. So the Democrats are vulnerable both on the terms of the numbers and the character of the states they currently represent. So the chances are, are that the that Republicans have a much better chance to make inroads than the Democrats who look like they face a real stone wall knocking off any Republicans. If they can hold on to the House, which they might do with a Republican, with DeSantis at the top of the ticket, and DeSantis had both chambers, uh, you could see some real conservative policies getting enacted. You might see the end of the filibuster, for example, because they would want to push that through. And one of the big things that Trump supporters want is to basically abolish the civil service protections that are enjoyed by the top five or 10 percent of the civil service that are engaged in, in policy making or policy follow through. And that, that has been one of their dreams. It's called they want to create a Schedule F for those people where those people can be fired at will. And basically, this whole argument about the deep state being this liberal opposition they want to cut the head off the deep state. Right. It's about destroying the dismantling what they call the administrative state as well. Yes, exactly. This is the LRB podcast. If you enjoy listening to it, you'll probably enjoy reading the London Review of Books. To subscribe from just £1 per issue, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen or click on the link below. Now, you know, long before uh, Arlie Hothschild's book was published, long before J.D. Vance, who, you know, as we know, just uh, won his race uh, for the Senate, long before J.D. Vance published uh, his Hillbilly Elegy, you had been writing about the growing conservatism among working class or and lower middle class uh, whites and uh, demographic shifts in American politics. So I wanted to ask you, um, do you think the resilience of Trumpism or for that matter of the kind of politics that a DeSantis 
represents. Do, do you regard this as a testament to class and cultural resentments among their voters? To what extent is it, and to what extent is it a result of xenophobia, racism, and white demographic anxiety, or is it even possible to disentangle these things? Are they all mixed up? Well, I think it began with race, and if you look at the, all the changes, the emergence of a conservative Republican Party on race and a liberal Democratic Party on race began with the 1964 Civil Rights Act. That's when polling saw the two party people, uh, voters began to see the two parties for the first time as left and right on race. And the voters then acted on that. And over time, Stan Greenberg, who's a Democratic pollster, did a lot of very good work in white working class suburbs of Detroit. And he found basically that white Democrats during this period of uh, basically in the 70s and 80s, increasingly saw the Democratic Party abandoning them, them in favor of blacks. And they saw it uh, not just affirmative action, but the whole thrust of the party was much Democratic Party was towards blacks and was basically, they felt, abandoning them then. And it was at a time when the economy was abandoning them. them. This was when globalization was beginning to hit Detroit, all the car manufacturers, the steel manufacturers. So you had the combination of basically a, ra- a shift in the racial thrust of the two parties and a real economic decline that Democrats didn't do anything about particularly. Right. Many of the workers in those factories were black and they continued to vote Democrat. No question. Uh, but the factories in some cases were shutting down. They were laying off. They weren't they were dropping from three shifts to two shifts to one shift. So there was a, a lot of cost going on being inflicted on, and people were not being able to get their sons into the same jobs that they had. Then you have the cultural revolutions coming up. And I think as much as liberals love the idea of autonomy and freedom, if you're a white working class guy, and you want your son or your daughter to have a good job. One, you don't want your daughter to get pregnant. And for the son, you don't want your son feeling that he has to express his autonomy and tell his boss to go to hell or walk off the job because he feels like having looking at the sky. You want someone who's obedient. And so that the liberal autonomy, freedom, personal fulfillment, all those goals ran counter in many ways to the way working class people have had to organize their lives. And they saw those those liberal threats as a threat to the viability of their own children. Doesn't this also, this, this uh, trend also intensify because it's precisely at that moment that the Democratic Party uh, begins to turn towards neoliberalism and to organize around groups like the Democratic Leadership Council and to abandon sort of trade union-based liberalism? Yes, this whole shift, of the, the abandonment of the wor- white working class becomes a real reality in a sense. By the, not, not only do they not really a- address the problems that globalization created for, for these workers, but their actual focus shifts to a, a much sort of higher level. It's like the, the pyramid of values. They, they no longer consider that the sort of survival questions, they're much more concerned with environmental issues, cultural issues that really have very, much less meaning if you're somebody who works with your hands all week and you take home a paycheck. And and it became this, as you say, that the the whole Gary Hart kind of leadership that the Democratic Party shifted towards, it was was away from just the people that they needed to keep if they were going to stay a party of the working class. Now the Democrats are no longer the party of the working class. Uh, they say they are, and in some respects, they remain there with some of their policies. But in substance, they just are in political substance. They are not the party. They are the party of the, at one respect, of minorities and another respect of white liberal elites. That's a very different 
coalition than what uh, it's been a this uh, sort of non-class re- realignment, anti-class realignment. And but aren't I, I take your point? But I want to push back slightly. Aren't there aren't many people who are belong to quote unquote racial minorities themselves working working class jobs? Don't they also form a portion of the working class? My my sense is that often the distinction that you're drawing is between those with a college education and those without, that it's as much an education divide as it is a class divide. It is. But I would say two things. One is that no question that there are many working class Hispanics, working class blacks. Uh, that's a very substantial proportion. But that's where the Republican Party has actually been making gains. Not much, but it, since 2018... There's been a steady two, three percentage point every election drop in support in those groups uh, moving towards the Republican Party. And that increases the legitimacy of the claim of the Republican Party that it has become the party of the working class. And and that's, espe- and that's especially, I think, with Latinos who are uh, religious Latinos and with black men, I think, black men in particular. It's also Hispanic men, too. Yeah, uh, there's a there's a masculine issue taking place here. The Democrats focus on the safety net, making sure that the risk of falling down is lessened. Republicans focus on cutting taxes, so if you make money, you can keep more of it. You can move up the ladder, and this has been one of the problems. Uh, it's interesting. A lot of liberal groups have found in their studies of Hispanic voters and their concerns with the Democrats is that the Democrats see them too much as a beleaguered minority as opposed to a group that has come to America seeking to get ahead. And they want to, they don't want to be seen as an oppressed group so much. They want a party that supports their desire for more opportunity. So that, And this translates to some extent into a gender kind of difference. Uh, uh, one, you're talking about right the psychology of masculinity and the psychology of seeing yourself um, as another kind of immigrant group with Horatio Alger dreams of making it in America rather than an oppressed and exploited group. Yes, and it uh, goes into the whole notion of sort of American exceptionalism as a stressing individual achievement and autonomy and risk taking. Right. Which, and this idea of American exceptionalism that seems to persist, even though statistically it doesn't seem to be bearing out very much. I think class mobility is quite limited in America right now. It is. There's no question that, there's a, that there is much. But I, I think a Republican would argue, I'm not saying I agree with this, but a Republican would argue that one of the reasons why that mobility is limited is because we've had democratic government basically limiting it and placing restrictions on free enterprise so that opportunities to rise up are lessened. But that's, but I, I actually disagree with that very much. At any rate, that's another whole... You know, in a piece that you published in early November, you quoted an economist at MIT, David Otor, who said that the class and cultural resentments of the white working class are not just baked in, they are burned in. It's quite a phrase. And do you think that if these resentments are in fact burned in, does this mean that this group is permanently lost to the Democrats? Or is there a way, as with you know John Fetterman, that they might be won over again? Well, I don't put too much on to John Fetterman. If you look at his vote counts in working class areas that had shifted to the Republican Party, he made modest, modest, modest gains, but they weren't like... It wasn't a landslide. He tended to do better with the college-educated progressive yes. voters. And he, he, in no way did he reverse Trump's victories in those counties. He did a little better. It was a nudge. But it, and Trump really reversed votes in some of those counties in a way that was radical. But there's a growing sense that polarization, and not just among the white working class, but polarization among all groups has become calcified, that has become so sort of hardened and more and more difficult. And if anything, I believe that the polls show that the white working class vote 
has gotten more and more, even after it's gone way over toward the Republican Party, it's even more over there. And the rural vote has become, this this rural-urban divide has become really deeply felt. And the animosity, the real thing is the animosity felt between what's called effective polarization, or you might call it emotional polarization, hatred for the other side, the the view of the other side as your enemy, not just your political opponent, but a group that is so evil they would destroy the values of America, they would destroy the values that you've lived your life for. And those views are not limited to, they are deeply held by the white working class. But if you go to a very liberal cocktail party in this country, they feel the same. They feel the same way, and I think that, they, that's why a lot of people are are talking about things like civil war. I mean, I yes, which seems quite unlikely, but still, the emotions are there, and um, uh, it does raise the question. I mean, how is this country going to continue to function if if this calcification continues and deepens? I that that is the question, basically, and that's why there's so much anxiety over democracy. When you get this level of animosity people abandon their commitment, and you see this on the Republican side to some extent, they abandon their commitment to sort of due process, uh, orderly elections, recognition of the legitimacy of the opposition to voice their views. And you see, instead of it being legitimate for the opposition to voice their views, you see that voicing as a threat to your well-being. And that's a, that's a different kettle of fish altogether. Right, because it's 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 existential politics. Yes, and uh, you know, and um, you know, you 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 had, in one of your columns estimated that between twenty and twenty five percent of Republican voters are extremists um, in the sense of, you know, supporting election denial, extreme levels of racism, conspiratorial beliefs like QAnon, or you know, the idea that Democrats are involved in these you know elite child trafficking schemes. Now, um, what would you say um, if someone said to you, well, that may be true, but, you know, Richard Hofstadter, the you know, great American intellectual historian, was writing in the 1950s and 60s about the John Bircher movement. And um, in, in his work, he offered sort of similar, I think, estimates for, you know, the, the layer of the American population that has always uh, gravitated towards these um, extreme and, and, and racist uh, and conspiratorial beliefs. What's different today? Is it that the Republican Party has basically surrendered to them and been taken over them? Is that the difference? I mean, or, or do you actually think the numbers have risen? Uh, I think the numbers may have risen, but I'm just not sure. What I think is different today is that it has become congealed with politics. Now it is integrated into the polarized political system. Before, you didn't have this division between the parties. Now, the extremists have become, on one side, integrated entirely into the Republican Party. And there may be, if they were under more duress, the Republican Party is the party in defense of the status quo. So they are fighting sort of a rearguard battle all the time. The Democratic Party is the party that keeps trying to uh, disrupt the status quo. And they don't have the same threat sense of, of trying to protect a, an established set of institutions that they instead want to change those institutions. So it's a, they're a different kettle of fish. But I, I, I don't know if there's a counterpart in the Democratic Party to the extremists in the Republican Party. But I think when extremism, one becomes polarized, and two, it becomes concentrated in one party, that's when it becomes really dangerous, because 20% of a party is is a much more influential force than it would be if it was just spread out all among all voters. And the result is that you, you have a block of voters on which you can build from that, and that's what Trump, in a sense, did. It gives a candidate in a system like we have, where you have two parties that have to be coalitions, 
It gives the coalition building in the primary process, when you're running for the nomination, not the general, it gives that candidate a base that very few candidates start with. If you, if you have that 20% and then you can start adding to it another 10% here, then it really becomes, you, you become a powerful force on your own. And the re- primary systems in this country reward, in the Republican Party especially, encourages winner-take-all primaries. So when you win with 31%, you get all the voters. That gives you this momentum to the next primary. And then more and more people just see you as the winner. And they're Republicans. They're loyal. They say, this guy looks like he's the winning Republican candidate. And it it gives the capacity to build on the 20% much more power. You did not have that way back in the 1960s and 70s, I guess, when, when John Birch or even 50s when John Birch Society people were, were active. And uh, now it's, it's the American political system has really become distorted by the way it has now divided America in so many respects, race, class, rural, urban, religion. They're all now, everything now fits along two separate uh, sort of uh, silos. And it's made a division that is much that I, has not been around in my lifetime, and I've been around all too long, and I, I, I'm not sure where it goes. Yeah, thank you for that cheerful assessment. Um, <laughs> I want to turn to something that's I think just as um, just as concerning and 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 connected to all this, and you know, racist appeals. You know, are, you know, as you know, are an old story in American politics, um, even if they used to be more coded uh, before Trump brought back this crude and undisguised bigotry. But what is new, um, or relatively new and startling, is the reemergence of, of anti-Semitism. I'm thinking, obviously, of the, the Trump dinner with, with, with Kanye and, and Nick Fuentes, but that's not the only example. And I'm wondering... You know how you interpret this, and how serious a force is this? You know, and in some ways, it's it's a bit strange because Trump, you know, also draws strength from from an evangelical base that has made common cause uh, with you know, with with Israel, and and tends towards philo-Semitism. So, what is the significance of this? Um, you know, of this current wave of of anti-Semitic rhetoric in American political life. I I think there's a well the whole. The, the Trump system has is in a certain sense blaming others for the problems that you have now. And once you get into that kind of thinking, the dangers of moving towards anti-Semitism increase. And I think it's a mentality that then lends itself, and it's surprising in a way that it hasn't come out more so, although Trump until now had sort of stopped that with his by stressing his son-in-law and his his ties to the uh, Jewish real estate community and da 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 da, and his ties to Israel, but uh, but his his broader approach to politics, which is to always blame others, is one that lends will, will encourage those who want to blame Jews for their problems, and he hasn't. Well, his dinners, his dinner is, was a real, I thought it was an insane thing to do. But who knows what goes on in his mind and whether, what, what, what kind, did he, does he have, uh, uh, he acts on, on intuition so much more than on thought out. More than on calculation. Yeah, but is there a, a subconscious calculation he's making here? I, that's a good question. Is he trying to now tap into an anti-Semitic vote? in the Republican primary electorate. I don't know. There used to be one, but it sort of disappeared. And what about Joe Biden? Do you think that Joe Biden is a credible candidate in the 2024 election? I think he's credible against Trump. The question is, I'm not sure that that he is a credible candidate against a, a Ron DeSantis or a Glenn Youngkin. And maybe... I'm not that impressed with a lot of the Republican senators. I think those two are the strongest Republican candidates, and I think both of them 
could give Biden more than a run for his mo the money. And uh, and in fact, I think Youngkin is the guy who, who has the potential, but he has a harder time getting the nomination. But he has a nice sort of grandfatherly quality and wears cardigan sweaters and all those. He doesn't come across as a hard right guy, but he has a lot of policies that fit that. But he doesn't, and he has the manner of a more traditional Republican. In, in that context, I think Biden is is a worrisome nominee. It seems to me that that the thrust of your columns is that even if the Democrats manage to hold on to the White House, the trends that you've been describing for several decades now and in the time since 2011 are going to persist and that America is careening down this path of increasing fragmentation, polarization, and irrational, especially irrational right-wing politics. Is that, I mean, obviously you don't have a crystal ball, but is it your sense that that we really are headed along that direct, hurtling along that direction? Uh, overall, yes, it is. What I What's really worrisome in a way is we've had two major traumatic events, the, the uh, recession of 2008 uh, and the uh, coronavirus. Both of them, normally major traumas like that result in a consolidation of the public in support of a general solution. Both those cases produced uh, more division than, than, than unification. When you have a situation where really bad events don't unite the country, that suggests the country is in really problematic shape. Conversely, though, there's a slight window of optimism from the rejection of the anti-democratic candidates that ran the last time. There may be some reason to think that there are some boundaries being placed on this, and there's a big case now before the Supreme Court that would allow legislatures to really undemocratically overrule election outcomes. And if the Supreme Court re supports that, then it's a worrisome development. If they reject it, that's a more favorable development. And we'll see where the Supreme Court stands. But I'm ambivalent but worried, I would say. Thomas Edsall, it's been terrific having you on the LRB podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. It's been great to be here.